Well, glory to God. Amen. That's a Pastor Cluck kind of song right there. <laughs> Amen. Well, we uh, really are glad to see you all here uh, for our conference. There's a tremendous atmosphere uh, tonight. It looks like Friday night already. And so we thank God this is going to be by far our largest conference. So we're going to need you to help us, cooperate with us. Uh, with parking and all the other things here. Uh, if everybody will just follow uh, the rules, that'll be a great, great blessing. And uh, we really are glad you're here. Amen. Let's uh, lay hold of God tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock. We'll be in this room praying. And let's believe God for an outstanding conference. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to go there in the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I read an amazing Story And as soon as I read this article, I mean, it just really helped me to, uh, to know what I wanted to preach on uh, tonight. And the story, I need to take you back about, oh, five or six years. And what happens is that every year, I didn't know this, there in Southern California, a town called Cathedral City, they have built a softball field that is a, a, to scale uh, exactly like Wrigley Field in uh, Chicago, Illinois, except it's it's, uh, it's three quarters the dimensions of Wrigley's Field. It has the ivy against the back walls. They even made a mock-up of the apartments that are outside off of Waveland Avenue behind left field. And it is the premier softball uh, base, a softball field in America. And every year they have a, a, a charity softball game between the all-stars of the American League and the National League. Now, we're going back about six years ago, and uh, uh, they were having this charity event, and all the best players in baseball were there, and the coach of the American League, the honorary coach, was a woman by the name of Jenny Finch. Jenny Finch happened to be, at that time, the best softball pitcher in the world. She was the captain of the American Olympic team that was going to go to the Olympics and win the gold medal in a few months. Um, and Jenny Finch uh, could throw a softball 63 miles an hour. Now, you got to understand in, uh, that a softball mound is 43 feet from uh, the, the mound to the, to the plate. In Major League Baseball, it's 60 feet and 6 inches. So because she's delivering the ball at 43 feet, a 63-mile-an-hour softball looks like a 95-mile-per-hour fastball. And so she was the coach, and what happened is Albert Pujols, the great batter at that time for the St. Louis Cardinals, maybe the best batter of our generation, came to bat. Jenny Finch was in the dugout, and when Albert Pujols came to bat, she walked to the mound and she took the ball from the pitcher and said, I'm pitching to Albert Pujols. When she grabbed this, here's this woman. She is going to pitch a softball against the greatest batter of his generation, or arguably. And when she got the softball, all of the fielders sat down, right there on the ground, sat down and said, we don't even have to field because he can't hit her. How many know that's embarrassing for a man to hear the words, he can't hit her? <laughs> so Albert Pujols got a little offended at that, so he dug in. And he was going to bat, and so the crowd came alive. Everybody's watching as Jenny Finch, the woman softball pitcher, is going to try to, uh, I was going to say man up, but I don't want to take a shot at softball pitchers, you know. <laughs> And so they, 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 they went at it, and guess what? Albert Pujols struck out. She whiffed him. Barry Bonds was there, steroid Barry. And when he saw that, he began to talk smack. And she challenged him, and he didn't want to bat. He said, you come to spring training in Arizona, and I'll, and I'll get you. Uh, and so sure enough, she showed up at spring training uh, uh, where the Giants were getting ready for the baseball season the following spring. And everybody's there, and they're all putting pressure on Barry Bonds, and he starts talking smack to her. And, and he said to her, uh, she's going to pitch you. He said, you better wear a cage because I'm going to hit you. Jenny Finch got up and pitched to Barry Bonds. This is 2007. This is the year he is going to uh, break the record for most home runs, uh, and she struck him out. A-Rod. 
Nimrod said, I will never bat against her. <laughs> and so they, they, the, the article was, how can a, a, a softball, a woman softball pitcher throwing 63 miles an hour, which, okay, 95 miles per hour in terms of, of what it would be like to, as you see it coming across the plate, but these are the best hitters in the world. 95 miles an hour is nothing to these guys. They can hit 100 miles an hour, and the ball is more than twice as big. It's like a grapefruit. How can Barry Bonds hit a 103-mile-per-hour pitch and knock it 500 feet, and a ball the size of a grapefruit is coming at him, and he can't hit it? So scientists began to say, what is this? Is she that good? Well, actually, no, she's not, ladies. I'm sorry. Some of you are like, wow, praise the Lord, you know. This, this is going to be a better conference than I thought, you know. No, the woman's conference is in the Alamo Dome at the end of the week, all right. <laughs> Let me tell you why Albert Pujols and Barry Bonds could not hit Jenny Finch. It has to do with our brains. And that is that our brains learn things. And what these men have become, the reason they had become such brilliant hitters is they had spent thousands of hours practicing their hitting. They have given their entire lives since they were six years old to hitting balls coming at them. Uh, and over the years, they had programmed their brains and become so good uh, that before the ball even left the pitcher's hand, they usually know where it was going. But as uh, they're batting uh, and they're going to draw from all those resources, none of them had ever batted against uh, a 95-mile-per-hour softball. And they had absolutely no reference point to draw from and they became just like a little leaguer. Because, beloved, God created us with the ability to learn. The mistake that people made in thinking that Albert Pujols or Barry Bonds or anybody else can get up against something they'd never seen and, and hit a home run is because of this belief that somehow gifting and talent takes the place of learning. I want to preach a sermon tonight called Ministry Fulfilled, and I want to give you some hope tonight. I'm talking about the man or woman here. You don't feel like you're the most gifted person in the world, and that somehow, because you weren't born with something, you can never have it. Well, I want to tell you, God gave you something incredible tonight. It's called a brain, and maybe this evening we might kill a sacred cow, a cow on the way. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 the apostle said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and uh, his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, they, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you... Be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, uh, I have kept the faith. Uh, finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who loved his appearing. Father, help us tonight. Uh, Oh, God, meet us powerfully in this conference. Uh, enlarge our hearts. Enlarge our understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to begin and talk about the challenge here in our text. And so, remember, this is Paul's final letter. These are his last words. And it is significant that when Paul wanted to pen his last words, knowing that he was going to die soon, that he wrote these, uh, this to his son in the faith, Timothy, and you need to understand that 2 Timothy chapter 4 is not about policy, beloved. Uh, it is not simply uh, uh, making a doctrinal case, uh, but this is passion. This man is going to die soon, um, and he is speaking to his spiritual son, um, and he is trying to now impart something that is closest uh, to his heart, um, and that's why you find the words, preach the word, uh, do the work of an evangelist, uh, and what I want to preach on tonight, uh, fulfill 
your ministry. Uh, and so when Paul says these words to Timothy, uh, do not look at it as a doctrinal treatise. Don't dismiss this tonight uh, as just some nice words, uh, but think about a man lying on his deathbed and his spiritual son is there waiting, uh, and it's as if Paul lifts himself from the bed, uh, grabs a, a Timothy uh, by the collar and says, make your life count. Fulfill your ministry. Be everything that you can be. The King James says, make full proof of your ministry. It means bring this to a completion uh, or finish the job. Um, and I would say that Paul would say that to any one of us. Um, and it does not matter how old you are tonight. Um, the verdict is not in on any of us. The issue tonight is not how good of a preacher you are or how big your church is uh, or how talented you are. Uh, the question tonight is, will we complete the job that God has laid out for us? Um, and what Paul is saying to Timothy is, son, keep growing. Keep developing. Thank God for all that Timothy had become. At this time, he is pastoring one of the most powerful churches uh, in the world, the church at Ephesus. Um, but he was a young man, and Paul said, son, you still have to develop. Timothy was called. He was anointed. He had gifting. He had leadership. Uh, but what was the question uh, was, are you still willing to learn something? Are you still willing to grow? Somebody said the largest room in the world is the room for improvement. Beloved, that every one of us uh, has not arrived. Um, this is a principle of the kingdom of God. Um, the Lord Jesus said in Mark 4, 28, the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. That is God's order tonight. It will always be God's order, first, then, after. It always requires a process. There is a recognition of time and development, um, Jesus had disciples. Disciples were learners. These were young men. Many of them uh, were uh, raw. They were uneducated. They were ignorant. Um, and they began to follow the Lord. Jesus did not expect them as young men to know it all. He doesn't expect you tonight to know it all. The question is, will you be a learner? Will you be a disciple? Will you engage your heart uh, and your mind? Fascinating reading this article about those people that we would call the very best at whatever profession they happen to be involved in. The best hitters, the best chess players, the best classical musicians. They say that when they study excellence, you will find the difference between a master and a mediocre person is not gifting or talent. At some point, People that are gifted and talented may rise to a certain level, but the ones who separate themselves and rise to the top, it has nothing to do with talent or ability at that point. They're all talented. They're all able. The difference has to do with development. It's whether or not a man will pay the extra price, whether that man will sacrifice in his personal time, whether he will give himself more than the others. That is why some rise to the top and some don't. It's not because some were appointed to this and some were just naturally more able than others. It comes down to how hard you are willing to work at it, how committed you are to development. They say that these, these hitters, I, I like baseball, hallelujah, the A's are going to win the World Series this year, amen, with one-tenth the, the payroll of all the other teams. But you know, in baseball, they say that a, a, a batter, when a, a major league pitcher is pitching the ball, has five one-hundredths of a second. No, I'm sorry, five milliseconds. I guess that would be one, five one-thousandths of a second, is all he has to know where that pitch, he's able to see the pitch and it crosses the plate. Five milliseconds. That's it. That's the, that's the same amount of time as if they shine a flash of light in your eye, your eye blinks. And yet they have to see the ball. They call hitting a baseball the hardest thing to do in sports. The reason these men can hit that ball is not because they have some sort of gifted sight. The fact is uh, that the moment that pitcher lets the ball go, they are guessing, uh, an educated guess, uh, where that ball is going to go, and they swing to where they think that ball is going to be. Now, uh, Peyton Manning, I hate the Broncos, but Peyton Manning, 
Amen. How many know uh, any team that uh, dumps Tim Tebow doesn't deserve to win anything? But anyway, don't get me started. I'm a Raider fan. <laughs> now, but they say that Peyton Manning, he, he, he is given his, he is, he's the school student, he's not the strongest arm. He's not the most talented player, but he has given himself. He's the student. It is his ability to say, this is my calling, uh, this is my career, this is my vocation, and I'm going to be the very, very best at this. But these men, they can recognize something, and immediately they know what it is. Uh, they have this ability, not through gifting, but through hard work. I remember many years ago, I got a phone call from somebody that said, oh, the Holy Spirit's being poured out in Pensacola, Florida. And brother, this is a move of God that we've all been waiting for. Uh, and, and, you know, people are crying and others are laughing and people are barking. I said, it sounds like the Barnum and Bailey Circus. I was right. And, uh, you know, there's this, this was this, you know, this, brother, how do we know? And we don't want to miss what God is. Doing. And so I hung up with him and I called Pastor Mitchell. And I said, hey, I just got this call about Pensacola and, uh, and all of this. And I'll never forget Pastor Mitchell's words immediately. I know what this is. And when I read this article, I thought about Albert Pujols when the ball's coming. And he knows where it is. That he had this ability uh, through uh, uh, commitment and development that he was able to recognize uh, uh, this false doctrine, uh, this wind that was blowing through, uh, that was uh, unclean, uh, and the years of experience, uh, somebody who had dedicated and applied himself, uh, and he knew what it was. He could see it. In baseball, they have the myth of the natural, and that is this kid who's born just with a bat in his hand. He came out of the womb with a bat and a glove. Poor mom. And he, he just is, you know, immediately, uh, you know, whenever he hits, it just sounds pure. Uh, and he can do all these things. And, and every uh, scout is just waiting for the natural uh, that just comes uh, and doesn't have to be developed. Uh, but it's not true. They spend millions of dollars on the natural. The church has its own. We don't call it the natural. We call it the anointed. This is the guy that's going to come in. He doesn't have to study. He doesn't have to read books. He doesn't have to sp uh, spend uh, hours preparing sermons. Uh, he just trusts the Holy Ghost. As if the Holy Ghost is not in you reading and studying or anything. Just the Holy Ghost. Just grab an old flyer, scratch out. Uh, we need God. We need God, God. We need God, amen. And say over and over again, what we need is the Holy Ghost. And somehow, uh, God is going to move. Never pray. Never see you in prayer meeting. You don't fast unless the fellowship's fasting. You're estranged from your pastor, but you've got the Holy Ghost. Unless you're willing to grow and learn and develop, this is what Paul is saying. This is what he's appealing to. Complete this. Don't stop growing. Feel this thing out. Go all the way. You know, I got to tell you a little secret. When I look for a new door director... Want to know what I'm looking for? I want to know who showed up early at the park to help set up. Who stayed late to put away things. Who's a blessing to the present door director? Is his wife a blessing to the door director's wife? I want to know if there's somebody who's learning. Who says, you know what, uh, I want this position, and so I'm going I'm to be your shadow, bro. I'm going to help you out uh, because I want to learn. I don't want somebody uh, who says, I don't know why they got that guy instead of me. I'm more spiritual than him, you know. I could beat him in, I could beat him in Bible trivia, you know. <laughs> Let me ask a question real quickly. Do you have a teachable spirit? Because nothing frustrates ministry like being unteachable. Three reasons why people are not teachable. I have to hurry. Pride. Pride says you can't learn from anybody else. Pride says you've outgrown your pastor now. Pride says uh, that uh, you can sit in a conference like this. Uh, and say, I know that guy. I can't hear from that guy. I know that guy. I remember a while back I had a guy uh, around, hanging around here, and every time we'd have a guest speaker, I, don't, I can't hear from him because I know too much about him. Somebody said the greatest mistake of education has been to assume that intelligent people are good thinkers. <laughs> High intelligence does not ensure effective thinking. It may actually make a person a poor thinker. 
For example, a highly intelligent person can take any view on a subject and then use his intelligence to defend that view. The more perfect the defense, the less chance the thinker has actually of exploring the subject. Oh, listen, I have met this guy over and over again. These are quick thinkers. Uh, they're clever. They're very good with words, but they don't know anything because they can't learn anything because they think, you know, how many know street smart is another way of saying stupid? <laughs> well, I'm street smart. <laughs> Time to learn. Another reason why we don't learn is unbelief. This is, I'm stupid, man. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't get past second grade. And automatically say, well, I can't learn because I'm, I, I don't know how to learn. I remember years ago, Pastor Warner was uh, kind of uh, rebuking all of us. Many years ago, I was a young pastor, and he was telling us how you need to pay attention to the business side. You've got you to dot every I. You've got to cross every T when it comes to the operation of your church. You've got to do the right thing. And, and one of the guys is like, you know, I was just a dope-smoking hippie. Well, time to grow up and quit being a dope-smoking hippie. Don't just write yourself off. Oh, I'm, just, we're I'm just dumb. You know, we are, we're just dumb. Third reason, laziness. You know, it's not as exciting just to have someone lay hands on you as it is to say, no, you're going to have to work. Man, I just, my brother, I just want the anointing. Just pray for me. I'll pray for you, but you're still going to have to work. Story goes that a woman was teaching for 20 years. Into her school, there was another woman that came in, and she was there for two years, and they needed a new principal, and the district chose the two-year teacher over the 20-year teacher. The 20-year-old teacher was upset. She had been there a long time, uh, and so she complained and said, why did you pick her over me? I've been here 20 years. And the response of the superintendent was simply this. Uh, this woman has two years' experience. Uh, you have one year experience 20 times. <laughs> Let me talk to you about the School of Evangelism tonight. See, we love the idea of miracle growth. We're living in an age where people want to be, they don't want to grow. They are attempting to bypass the process of normal development. You look at the market today of miracle growth products. Every farmer here to tell you about miracle grow, and you don't have to just do everything. Everybody else just, just take our little elixir uh, and pour it in the ground, and like Jack and the Beanstalk, the next day, uh, you're going to have uh, uh, the harvest that you want, but it goes way beyond plants. Uh, listen, they have miracle grow hair. Some of you are laughing. Oh, how did he find out? You know what I mean? <laughs> they have miracle grow height. I remember driving down the road, and they were, oh, I'm not lying, on the radio, they were talking about little Johnny hasn't growing, and like, hey, take these pills, and you add three inches. I said, like, where was this when I was a kid? <laughs> Prove your memory, on and on and on. The church, we want miracle growth. I remember a number of years ago, I was somewhere in the world, and I was having lunch with some guys, and they were telling this story about uh, this guy I know, we all know, and he has a good ministry, and this guy goes, you know what happened? He was traveling in this third world country, and this great international crusader was there, and so he attended the crusade, and at the end of the crusade, this, this, uh, this uh, uh, well-known crusader went up to this brother and laid hands on him, and ever since then, it's like his ministry took off. And all the other guys were like, wow. And I think that's, the, that's a bunch of bunk. I said, you know why that guy has a ministry? Not because, quote, so-and-so laid hands on him, but Pastor Warner laid hands on him and sent him out. That's why. Because he was disciple. Oh, that is not as exciting of going to some and having someone just lay And all of a sudden, ah, now you're anointed. Because we love miracle growth. I want you to consider what the Apostle Paul is saying here to this young man. 
How do you fulfill your ministry? How do you grow to become everything God wants you to be? The answer is in our text. Do the work of an evangelist. He is not referring to an office, but an activity. And what he is saying to Timothy, it's true for you and I, that the pathway to spiritual development, the pathway to growth as a man of God, is to be on the road of redemption. That a genuine burden for souls, a willingness to minister to people, will enlarge you. The apostle said, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open to you, our heart is enlarged. That there is a growth that only comes when you place yourself uh, in the, in the, into the ministry of real people. Uh, there is no point to being a shepherd unless you are taking care of some sheep. We were in Pastor Wakefield's church the other night. Pastor Mitchell was preaching just an absolute masterpiece sermon. I begged him to please preach it here at the end of the week. I, don't, I hope he does. But he preached his sermon, but he told this little story that when he began to see revival there in uh, uh, Prescott uh, and the Foursquare denomination began to take notice of this, you know what they would do with fruitful men is they would uh, promote them out of the pulpit and they would make them like the district leader and they'd have a nice desk, a secretary, and then they basically would go around and just preach in all the churches, uh, but they would remove them from being a pastor and and uh, they offered, and in the denominational world, this is a plum. This is what you work so hard for. Uh, you don't have to deal with people anymore. Praise the Lord. And Pastor Mitchell had enough insight uh, to say, I'm called uh, to be a pastor of people. Uh, I'm not called to be a desk jockey. Why? Because the work of evangelism is what causes men to grow. It is an involvement with people. John 10, the good shepherd, gives his life uh, for the sheep. The classroom of discipleship, gentlemen, is ministry. If you want to make disciples, listen to me tonight, uh, it is in ministry. Wisdom is not knowledge. There are a lot of educated idiots in the world. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. Uh, it is the ability to take what you know and then apply it. We have to be careful as our fellowship ages uh, that we don't try to create in the classroom what we learned on the streets. That what we're doing is trying to codify what God has done rather than do what God has done. The truth in most Bible colleges is they are talking about in a classroom what another, another generation did ministering to people. Sergey Golubov ministered in the Prescott Conference and he said something and I, I, I emailed him and he wrote me back and he, great little quote, he says, I tell my men that want to preach, the Bible is your textbook, the Holy Ghost is your teacher, the streets are your classroom and sinners are your examiners. You want to learn to preach? Then get on a street corner and preach. That is where preaching is learned. Sit under preaching and then go and expect that, find a place to preach. You know why I learned to preach? I sat under Pastor Warner's preaching. The other day, uh, uh, the, the ladies, uh, they're going to bless the ladies tomorrow, all the pastor's wives may go to the luncheon. And, uh, and one of the things that they, that I, I hope I'm not jumping ahead of them, but is that they put in an old sermon that I preached 22 years ago uh, they're in this little, you know, what they're doing there. And so, anyway, they had, so I said, I'm going to listen to this I, just a little bit. And I turned this thing on. It scared me. <laughs> 22 years ago, I talked like this, and I talked and I'm off over here, and I'm way over there, and just bouncing around the room everywhere. <laughs> but I thought, man, at that time, I sounded a lot like Pastor Warner did back then. Because I learned to preach by sitting under my pastor's preaching. And then I would go out and I would preach on the corners. That is how I learned to preach. I was still in high school. I was senior in high school, so I took speech. I took speech not to learn how to speak. I took speech so I could preach to everybody in the class six times and get a grade for it. <laughs> I preached on the last days. I preached on sin. I did everything I could.
I was preaching some. I'm going to tell you where we, we got to be careful. I was preaching in a rally somewhere else, and this guy comes up to me, and, you know, oh, Pastor Ruby, you know, I, you know, I'd like to hear you preach, and, you know, and how did you do this, and can you give me a copy of your notes? And he's, and he's saying this, and, and so I'm like, brother, just, you know, study the Word of God, go out and street preach, and minister, you know, no biggie. And he goes, no, bro, no. I want to know your style. Your style? Are you out of your mind? What's wrong with you? <laughs> your style. I don't have a style. See, we have to be careful that it's, it, we're just like, well, you know, how do you do that? Preaching is a spirit. Truth is caught more than taught. Prayer. I learned to pray by praying. In prayer meeting. Okay, I hadn't even heard of EM Bounds before I started praying. I just started praying. Luke 11 and 1, it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So they're there at prayer meeting and Jesus is praying and they're watching. How many know that's not the only time that's ever happened? <laughs> Jesus is praying and they're sitting there watching him pray, and they go, wow, I like to do that. You want to learn how to pray, go into a prayer meeting and watch some people pray. And realize, hey, I can do that. I can learn this. Uh, God can help me. That does not have to be deconstructed. I, I, I may have shared this illustration. I know I've shared it. I don't remember where. But a few years ago, we were meeting at the International Bible Conference. Remember, we had Bible Conference there about 12 years ago. And the president of the Bible College, David Cook, he's a good man, I Cook's nephew, he uh, was telling me, he goes, oh, Pastor Ruby, he said, this morning, uh, some of your people came to our prayer meeting, and he's the one who told me the story. They have their prayer meetings at Bible College, and so we're there meeting, we have our, our conference prayer at 8, some people went early for good seats and arrived at 7 when the Bible College is having their prayer meeting. And so they walked in to save seats, and when Brother Cook saw him, he invited them over, said, why don't you guys come and join us for prayer? And so these disciples came and said, yeah, okay. And, they, and, and so they all got in a circle and held hands. <laughs> and so, okay, let's go around the room, and, you know, Tom, will you start again? And Lord, thank you, Lord, for the trees, cloud, the water, Lord. Oh, thank you for the water. And then, you know, and, and then they move on to Susan. And, oh, and uh, Lord, I just thank you for my, my, my pet. And, uh, and, and they're going around the room, and they finally got to one of our disciples. Uh, Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, we take the man. And he said, Brother Ruby, I could tell he was with your group. You learn that by going to prayer meetings. You know, it would help to learn some people skills. See, a school of evangelism means that you better learn how to work with people because that's who we're trying to reach. And it causes you and I, amen, we are put into this arena where people are constantly coming in to us uh, and we are learning. We are deciding whether or not uh, we are going to minister to them. Um, and at some point, every pioneer pastor uh, or pastor's wife realizes you have to grow tired of offending people and running them off. And you usually learn that about the third congregation to come through the door. <laughs> of course, the first two are rebels and devils and religious people. But after about number three, you might start saying, maybe uh, I can't just lose my temper. Maybe I just can't finally say, I'm going to tell you what I think. <laughs> and you just, just make a commitment, I better learn. Pioneer called his pastor and said, Pastor, you know, I, I really love the Lord. I really feel called to preach, but I'm just not outgoing. What do I do? And the pastor said, change. <laughs> That's what you do. You change. Well, I'm not like that. Well, you better get like that. You better learn. You better spend some time taking pictures and learning how to recognize some things. Because that is how the brain operates. That is how God created us. You can learn how to work with people. 
You can learn how to be gracious. You can learn how not to say certain things. Hello? You can exercise self-control. Critics often say of us that our men are untrained and uneducated. You didn't know they said that about you, did you? <laughs> you, thought you, were, you thought you were all that, you know? No, they say we're untrained and uneducated. I want to tell you something. I give, uh, amen, I am more confident a man committed to the harvest, and I think he has a much better chance than a man who's just read a bunch of textbooks. Not just somebody who got sent out, but somebody that's doing the work of an evangelist, that understands his call, and he has placed himself uh, in that arena and says, I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn to preach. I'm going to learn how to pray. I'm going to learn how to work with people. I'm going to commit myself to this task. I'm going to do this work. Has a much better chance of success that someone, oh, yeah, I read this and I read all that great book and I, and I read that and, you know. I'm reading George Washington's biography right now. A poor church is hearing overloaded with Washington illustrations. But you know one thing that's really fascinating me about George Washington is Washington was not an educated man. Unlike most of the founding fathers, he had very little. Of all the founding fathers, he was the least educated. His mother, Mary Ball Washington, was a mean woman. And, you know, everybody loved George except his mother. She was like, he left me, he abandoned me. She was so bad that she, during the middle of the Revolutionary War, she went to uh, uh, the uh, government in Virginia and said, I've been left destitute by my son in the middle of the Revolutionary War, just to humiliate him. Not a nice lady. And, and so what happened is when George Washington's father died, she just pulled him out of school. I need you to work on the farm. And then as a young man, he got involved in the military, and he never got an education. He always wished he had had one, because he immediately, as the, uh, America began to move towards revolution, he began to rub elbows with Adams, Jefferson, and these guys, and... Uh, 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 ben Franklin, and, and, and these men were brilliant, classically educated men. And here's George Washington. So what happens is as the war comes to a completion and they begin to realize they're going to have to now organize a government and they begin to consider a constitution and a president, Adams and Jefferson were intellectual elites. And both of these men despised George Washington and thought, this guy can't lead because he's not educated. He has not been formally trained to do this. Uh, and in many of the founding fathers' minds, yeah, thank God that he did what he did in the war. But, but, but you know, we're talking about running a government now. We need somebody that, you know, you know, you know, you know been to Princeton, been to Harvard. But see, where they misjudged George Washington is he may not have been classically educated, but he had been educated by leading an army in war for eight years. And the fact was, in eight years of keeping this uh, ragtag group of men together, Washington began to form very powerful convictions about uh, how these 13 colonies have to have some sort of federal authority, how there has to be some sort of a tax, there has to be some standing army. And he began to understand the dynamics of leading a nation uh, born from the battlefield, uh, born from actually being in the arena of having to lead and manage uh, and actually uh, uh, go through the battles of life, beloved, uh, he began to learn an incredible amount, uh, not in some classroom, not sitting around uh, in some Ivy League school learning a few things, or dear God, being a community organizer. This man uh, actually was in the battlefield for eight years, uh, and in actually being in the battle, he began to learn, uh, and, and as a result, he could lead our nation, and I'm glad he's the father of our country. You, you learn by doing the work. You fulfill your ministry by doing the work. Amen. Listen, I'm going to say something here. You know, in our fellowship, we have a lot of preaching. 
Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday schools. We got all sorts of revivals, conferences, uh, and, and, you know, I go places, and I, oh, you know, I go online, and I downloaded this tape, and I downloaded, and I'm thinking, you know, you already, here's two sermons on Sunday, one on Wednesday, discipleship classes, and now you spend your off time downloading sermons to hear more sermons? I'm glad you're hungry for preaching. Don't get me wrong. But you know what would be really nice? Uh, maybe one day before you decide to go trolling for another sermon on the internet, you might stop and say, rather than do that, I might just go out and have an outreach. Uh, I might go follow up on a new convert. Uh, and you know, you, you might learn a little more by actually doing something rather than listening to something. I mean, if you have any more, we're going to have to give you some raisins and oatmeal. Because this isn't a classroom. The classroom is ministry. Let me hurry up and close and talk about the example tonight. Because understand that when Paul says these words to Timothy, there's context. Timothy would have received this letter and heard this appeal. Fill your ministry. Grow into all that God wants you to be. Complete this. And the words, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Paul is saying, Timothy, I'm your example. I'm coming across the finish line. And he's saying, look, Timothy, do this. This, this is what matters. Not where you are right now, but the question is, Timothy, in the end, can you say, I fought, I, I uh, finished, I kept? Are you going to be able to say that? That's the issue tonight. Not where you are right now. But it's will we be able to say at the end, uh, you know what, I was the same way at the end as I was 30 years ago. Are you going to complete? Are you going to finish? Are you going to, will you have become everything God intended you to become? And what he is saying to Timothy is not, oh, are you going to die and go to heaven? Or are you going to die having been a preacher of the gospel? The real question is, will you die having done your best? Jimmy Carter in his book, talks about when he graduated from the Navy and he was going to go into the, into the uh, nuclear Navy. At that time, the nuclear Navy was led by Admiral Hyman Rickover. He's the father of the nuclear Navy. Hyman Rickover served on active duty until he was 83 years old. Um, he, the nuclear Navy belonged to him, and every officer that was going to go into the nuclear Navy had a private interview with Admiral Hyman Rickover, and it was Jimmy Carter's turn. Um, and uh, he was being interviewed, and Rickover asked him a question. Uh, he said, son, what was your standing in your graduating class at the Naval Academy? Jimmy Carter said, I swelled my chest with pride and answered, sir, I stood 59th in a class of 820. And then Carter said, I sat back and waited for the congratulations. Instead of congratulations, the Admiral asked, did you do your best? Jimmy Carter said he started to answer, yes, sir. But then he remembered who he was talking to. He gulped and admitted, no, sir. I didn't always do my best. Carter said the admiral just looked at him for the longest time, and then he asked him only one more question. Why not? See, the issue tonight is at the end, beloved, are we going to be able to say, I did my best, that I kept growing, that I didn't come to some point in the ministry and maybe I became discouraged or disillusioned or distracted. And oh yeah, I stayed in the ministry, but at some point I began to coast. You do anything long enough, you can begin to cruise control. But 
The Bible says strive for the mastery. It says contend for the faith. I love the story of H.L. Mencken, the great journalist from Baltimore. He was editor of Mercury Magazine one day, and he was still a younger man. And the story goes that one day he was in his office with all of his workers, the typewriters, they're working, and he has his editor's desk, and he's sitting there watching his workers, and everybody's shocked. He, he, they're on the second floor of a building, and H.L. Mencken goes, ah! Everybody turns around, and he says, look, look, do you see it? It's rising and rising, and everybody's looking around. They think he's lost his mind, and then Mencken goes, and he stands up on top of a chair. It's rising, it's rising, don't you see? It, and nobody knows what he's talking about uh, and then he jumps on top of his desk uh, it's rising it's getting higher and higher and everybody's just uh, uh, you know confused them um, and then finally angel Macon says don't you see it uh, it's rising we're drowning we're drowning and then he yelled out we're drowning in mediocrity <laughs> and he grabbed his briefcase and he quit and walked out the door Because it's possible to drown in mediocrity. They say, I'm doing it, but I'm not doing my best at it. The song says, no regrets, not this time. I'm going to let my heart defeat my mind. Let your love make me whole. I think I'm finally feeling something. Because just okay is not enough. Help me fight through the nothingness of this life because I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. I don't want to spend my whole life asking what if I had given everything instead of going through the motions. And that's what Paul is saying. You know, Timothy, you've grown this far. I'm dying now. I want you to see that I finish the course running full speed. That's what you need to do. I read an amazing little story here, and I'll finish with this. It's about a woman named Meredith Fitzmaurice. She's 34 years old, 34 years old. She's a Canadian woman. This woman wanted to run the Boston Marathon, and so she would have been in training to run the Boston Marathon. You have to qualified by reaching a certain time. She never ran a marathon in her life. And so she decided to enter a half marathon, the Ontario half marathon. And she was going to uh, just train and then in a couple weeks, a few weeks, run a real marathon. And so the woman began running this half marathon and eight miles into it, she has her music on and she's running and she's just running hard. And she got so into her music that she didn't see a sign that said, if you're in the half marathon, turn right. If you're running the full marathon, keep going straight. She ran right past a turn and kept running on the full marathon track. This woman never ran a marathon in her life. And she started running and running, and she's thinking, man, this is a long way. And she just kept running and running, uh, and, uh, and, just, and then uh, finally she asked uh, uh, somebody on a bicycle, and they said, oh, the turnoff is, oh, no. She said, oh, well, uh, I'll just run until I get tired. Uh, and she kept running and running, and she ended up winning the marathon. <laughs> Three hours and ten minutes. Never done one in her life. Let me tell you something. If you do your best, you're going to go a lot farther than you ever thought you are going to go. But if you're pioneering and you know there'll only be 10 people so you don't do your best. If you've been preaching a while and you know how to put together or collect a few thoughts uh, and just get by with a sermon without really doing, you, you, you know whether you're doing your best. You know whether you're building your own personal altar or you're defiling it. But the truth is that when you do your best, Friend, you have no idea how far that will take you because the ministry is a marathon, beloved. It's a marathon. Let's bow our heads.
We're going to hear a lot of preaching this week. We're going to be challenged along the way. It's easy to say, well, I'm just not one of the anointed ones. Oh, I just don't have that brother's gifting. I don't have that, that, that you know. Therefore, it's not, and listen, that is not how God created us. I believe in gifting. I believe in anointing. But beloved, that will never take the place of your willingness to grow and develop and learn and apply yourself and discipline yourself and remain steadfast to the task. It will never replace those things. Somebody said there is nothing as common as talented men who never achieve. I want to say, first of all, is there anybody here, you're not right with God in this building. You came to this conference. You're not saved tonight. You need forgiveness. You need the blood of Jesus to cleanse you. You don't need religion. You don't need to just go to church. You need a miracle of salvation in your life tonight. You say, Pastor Ruby, I, would you pray for me? Lift up your hand right now. Put it up high where I could see it. And by raising your hand, tap, I'm not right with God, Pastor. Would you pray for me? Lift it up all around this building. I want to give you an opportunity to be saved. Lift it up. Maybe you're a backslider. Would you lift up your hand and pray for me, Pastor? I'm not right with God. I move along very quickly. Anybody else? Amen. God bless you. Lift up your hand. Hold it there. I'm not right with God, Pastor. Amen. Brother, you lifted your hand. Lift your head and look at me. If you lifted your hand, lift your head and look at me. I want you to get out of your seat right now and come. Come on. Get out of your seat. Come on, brother. I see you. Come on. Who else? You lifted your hand. Come on. I want you to come. Don't be embarrassed. Just step out. Make your way. God's dealing with you. Praise the Lord. All these. Come on. All these guys, young men are coming. Just step out. God wants to help you. These are coming. Come on, brother. God bless you. We need some men to help us with these. Come on up. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God's going to kneel right here at this altar. Praise God. God's going to help you tonight. Right here. I need some men here to help us this evening. Praise God. I want to challenge this church, this conference tonight. Grow. Develop. Learn. That's the issue. The issue is will you keep learning? Will you be committed to growing? You know where you grow? You grow by doing the work of an evangelist. You immerse yourself in the ministry. You work with people. You pray for people. You realize that you have to communicate truth. And that's, that's where you grow. You don't grow in, a, in an ivory tower. You don't grow, beloved, sitting in a, in a classroom. Get involved in the ministry. And do your best. Maybe you've put it in cruise control. I've learned something over the years in ministry. When you begin to get in cruise control, you start hating the ministry. You begin to want to find a way out because you're no longer growing. Fill your ministry tonight. Let's stand together all around this building. I want to invite you to come down.